The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 97 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus, along with my co-host, the CISO of Siena, Andy Benello. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own, I'm my president of past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So, before we get started, I want to remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals of the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, my main man, Andy Benito, kicking it last week with Ed Cabrera, and he's the Chief Cybersecurity Officer over at Trend Micro. Uh, he's one of the leading cybersecurity companies in the industry, and they, they got on the, sh- the show to talk about the risk and threats and vulnerabilities that cybersecurity professionals are facing today. And the show got a huge response from our audience. It's actually one of our biggest weeks ever uh, on the show, and that just goes to show you how much respect is out there for Ed. And, uh, you know, Ed got into the details on what many people are really interested in, and that's the details about the who, the what, the where, the how the why, the whole report, right? The whole intelligence brief uh, about threat actor groups and specific threat actor groups. And look, everyday cybersecurity professionals are very interested in this kind of information because it affects their work every day. And the the everyday folks out there are just interested in cybersecurity, are really fascinated by these underground cybersecurity groups, or they're not cybersecurity groups, they're cyber organized crime groups, excuse me, that are attacking our way of life every single day, right? So it's the adversary. And so who is the adversary? And uh, that's very interesting to folks, and it should be. Um, so the importance of actionable intelligence in every single intelligence-led program cannot be understated, right? It just can't be understated. Um, I think, you know, Ed also talked about the importance of cybersecurity awareness in every corporate culture, which I think is a lot bigger of a challenge than people think, seem to think it is. I think it's, you know... I think people are underestimating, you know, how difficult it is to actually shift and move an entire culture in a certain direction. And he also talked about the role of compliance uh, and how that helps to increase an organization's defense and death security posture. There is a role there, right? Um, And we talk about this a lot. We try to get away from the compliance checkbox, you know, operation and that, that kind of model and get back into a risk model. We're always talking about risk on this show. But compliance has a role, and uh, it, we should understand what that role is. And he dove into the cybersecurity talent crisis, too, and the workforce skills gap that, that the industry is currently facing. Look, which I predict 
is just going to get worse. It's just going to get worse. That's right. It's going to get worse. I really, I really think it is. And I think we'll dive into that more in an upcoming episode. But that's right, ladies and gentlemen. I think it's going to get a lot worse than it is. And um, it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't seem to be getting any better. And I think I know why. Um, Cabrera wrapped up last week's episode with, with co-host Andy Manila by discussing how threat research drives innovation and the creation of disruptive technologies, which is very cool. So the show was totally badass. If you missed it, not to fret, ladies and gentlemen. You can always watch us or catch us on playback, not watch us yet, but you will soon. Catch us on playback on your favorite playback medium. It's right at the top of your TF7 radio playback library. So don't miss Ed Cabrera, the Chief Cybersecurity Officer of Trend Micro. On last week's episode, that's episode number 96 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is a most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world, including Mr. Ed Cabrera, of course. Last week he was on the show. And of course, we have our news section as well as uh, you can check out the latest cybersecurity news and, and just sync up with all the other TF7 radio listeners out there. You can write comments on the news articles. It's just a lot of fun. And we're on at least 11 different playback mediums now. We made it easy for you to find them all. Just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage, and it'll, you'll see your entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 radio website, which is really the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. This way, you will get all the TF7 radio updates right from the site. And as the site gets more robust, you'll get notified about TF7 Extras, Encore episodes like the one we'll be posting this week. And I can't wait to see uh, who it's going to be because I, I haven't even chose that, that, that Encore episode yet. These Encore episodes do really, really well. They're some of the most listened to episodes that we have in TF7 Radio. And we throw them out there once a month uh, just to remind everybody in case you missed it. We put it right at the top of the library and people love it. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience. 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe, folks. We love it. So we got another great show for you tonight. We're going to have the Chief Technology Officer of Inquest, Pedram Amini, on the show with us this evening. And before becoming the CTO at Inquest, Pedram was a director at uh, Avast, uh, and then it was a founder, a jump shot, and jump shot was huge, right? It was a solution for the identification and removal of deeply entrenched malware that had a successful exit for the, for the company, right? So it was a very good deal for him, very successful entrepreneur uh, and technologist. And we're going to ask him a lot about how he did this and uh, how he got it done, especially in the entrepreneurial space. You know, we just had uh, David Raviv on not too long ago. We were talking a lot about startups in the cybersecurity space. So we're going to get Pedram's intake, uh, our take on this because He's done very well uh, in this area. So before Jumpshot, he founded the Zero Day Initiative at Tipping Point, where the intrusion prevention system was invented. Very cool. Um, at Tipping Point, he built and managed the world's largest group of independent researchers in the cybersecurity industry, which is to date the predominant source of all Microsoft vulnerability discoveries, which is something that, that I learned just this week. Um, so it's a very interesting fact. And he has historically spent much of his time in the shoes of a reverse engineer developing automation tools and processes. And you know what, we're gonna get into the trenches a little bit with, with him about that tonight and, and what reverse engineering really is 
you know, what this means to the industry, what it means to your career, how important of a skill set is it for white hats to have, and what kind of people are really best at reverse engineering. So I think these are very, very cool questions uh, to ask someone uh, who is so successful in the space and has so much experience uh, being a white hat in reverse engineering and, and, and hacking and everything else. So Petra was formally presented and given training courses at Black Hat. I think he just spoke at Black Hat a couple of weeks ago and numerous other inf information security conferences globally. He holds a cybersecurity degree from Tulane University, and he's the author of the book, Fuzzing, Brute Force Vulnerability Discovery. So it's time, folks. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show the Chief Technology Officer of Inquest, Pedram Amini. So Pedram, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, and I want to start off today's show uh, with talking with you about some of the more basic definitions and sort of level setting some of the terminology that we often use in this business. And, you know, and it, whether you're at work or whether you hear it on the news, uh, it's very important to understand exactly what some of the words that we say all the time mean. I mean, you hear these words all the time, like hacking and vulnerabilities and and exploits and even risk and, and, and operational risk and things like that. And then we'll get into some of the more complicated stuff and I think in the second and third segments of the show, but I just really want to take advantage of your expertise uh, and having you on the show. Because whether you're a novice in cybersecurity or you work in cybersecurity every day in your career and do this all the time, <laughs> you know, ad nauseum seven days a week, right? Especially if you're an ops. I think it's really good to go over some of this stuff once in a while because some of these terms they're often interchangeable, and it can get confusing, and uh, we hear them all the time, so it's really good to level set and to understand and follow the conversation properly. So really, you have a lot of experience uh, in, in reverse engineering uh, and hacking and, and, and taking advantage of uh, vulnerabilities. What exactly is a hacker? How would you define a hacker? Yeah, you know, so everyone's got a little different way of uh, defining this word. But for me, truly, a hacker is just someone who has a tenacious curiosity. You know, someone who can sit down and focus on something to completion, can take a device or a piece of software, and, you know, through lateral thinking, make it do something that it wasn't originally designed to do. You know, that's a pretty big definition there, uh, but that to me is what a hacker is. So it sounds to me like someone's got to be very, have an intellectual curiosity about the way things function and the way they're engineered to really be a hacker. Yeah, and then you got to get in there, like get into the guts of it, you know, whether it's code or hardware, and then find a way to manipulate that system to make it do something neat. You know, and this can be something that's as trivial and clever as, for example, you've seen those, um, uh, those like talking fish on the wall. You push the button and it starts singing. Yeah. You know, I've, seen guy, yeah I've seen a guy take that thing and make it into like an Alexa, right? So when he calls Alexa, you know, that fish looks up off the wall and takes the command. Like, that's a cool hack. So, how do you think these guys get started in this space? I mean, surely somebody doesn't wake up one day and just say, hey, I think I'm going to be a hacker. I mean, that's the way it does work. I mean, I don't know. Um, I'm certainly not a hacker. So, what, 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 what do you, you know, how do people get started in this space? What happens? You know, there's a variety of ways. I mean, if you go back to, you know, like the late 80s, the 90s, I think most guys kind of got their, their initial fix in this world by playing around with the phone system. You know, these are your, your phone freakers, as they were called back in the day. You know, whether it was collecting manuals that they would take off of like an AT&T truck or, you know, just, you know, messing around with the phone system. You know, that was one way that, that folks kind of got into the space. 
You know, today, though, you know, it's really anybody who's got a passion for it and can put in the time can really get into the space. You know, if I'm ever asked by folks, hey, you know, I want to get into that world or, you know, you know my kid's got an interest, how, does, how do they get started? You know, I tell them it's just passion over time you know, equals hacking. So how did you get started in, in this space? How did, how did you get into hacking? How did it interest you? What, what happened in your life that said, hey, look, you know, told you, hey, look, this is what I really want to be involved with in my career, and I want to do this every day. Yeah, you know, I've always found the space interesting, just technology interesting. Even at a, at a super young age, I used to watch, uh, like, BattleBots. You know, I'm talking about, like, you know, seven, eight years old, I was watching you know, BattleBots with a the, with the passion. You know, if I could, you know, draw it back, maybe the, the first, like, legitimate hack I can think of was I was, you know, I got some uncles in Germany, and I was hanging out with them over the summer. Uh, they lived in an apartment complex and there was like this series of garages behind them. And I had, you know, I was like eight or nine years old, you know, I'd taken apart their garage door opener and I noticed that there was a series of, of dip switches, like, you know, these like toggleable pins in there. And so I just started playing with them, you know, one by one, playing with the different patterns until I figured out how to map each garage door to the individual like pin mapping. And so then I would sit there, you know, hiding behind the curtains. And when, whenever somebody, you know, one of their neighbors came home and, I'd switch, change those dip switches to match their, their garage code, and I would, you know, I would screw around with them. Like, like as he's trying to leave, I would push the button to open the door again, and you know, you know keeping them confused in there and you know, laughing behind the, the curtains. So I think it, this is almost like in, in, in embedded in people's personalities as, you know, as growing up as kids. Most people who are hackers, I think from what you're saying and from what I've seen in my experience, know that they're interested in this space at a very young age. Like someone who doesn't wake up at the age of 35 and say, oh, man, I'm interested in hacking. That doesn't happen often, right? Yeah, I think, I think it's a fair assessment to make. I mean, there's certainly going to be exceptions to any rule. Right. Uh, but I think that's a fair generalization. So when you're talking about risk, and we talk about risk all the time on this show, right, and, and we try to drive that home, that we try to get off the compliance checklist here and, and get into really mitigating and managing risk, it's important to understand what a vulnerability is and how do you define a vulnerability uh, in the conversation that we're having. So in your mind, you know, how do you define what a vulnerability is in the, in the cybersecurity space? Sure. So, you know, a, a, vulnerability, a vulnerability already exists, right? It's, um, it, it's some logic fault or, you know, some other weakness that exists. And we're talk, let's talk about software here. You know, so there, there's some... Uh, you know, some, some logical uh, opening that creates an opportunity for someone who can discover that vulnerability uh, to make that software behave in an erratic way. You know, on, on the low end in terms of risk, you know, maybe they can get something to crash, right? You know, denial of service. You know, that, that's going to be a less, less of a risk ex- exposure. On the, uh, you know, on the more severe end, you know, perhaps that vulnerability is exploitable in the fashion that, you can actually get that software to now run arbitrary code. So if we're looking at, for example, you know, maybe a web server, um, and perhaps there's an issue with that web server you know, receiving a, a large request. Uh, on the low end, maybe we can make that web server crash. Um, on the high-risk side, perhaps we can make that web server suddenly run a piece of malware that we've passed over to it. So on the reverse end of that, I guess, is the exploit. And you just mentioned, you know, creating an exploit to take advantage of the vulnerability. How would you define an exploit and how it works in the, in the risk conversation? Yeah, so, you know, the, 
the vulnerability exists, you know, sitting there in the software, it's something that was, was overlooked or maybe even just by design, uh, the vulnerability exists. An exploit is then the mechanism that takes advantage of that vulnerability to do, do something. Whatever that something is will be up to the exploit author. Uh, but, you know, that's the differentiation between those, those two words. So can a vulnerability have several different exploits? Yeah, for sure. And if you give, uh, first of all, the same vulnerability might be discovered by, by multiple folks and they might have different approaches for, for exploiting it. And then of course, once you have exploited it, your payload is, uh, you know, the, the final deliverable that you're sending down uh, could be anything, you know, and that's going to be driven by intent. From a forensic standpoint, is the, is, is the investigation of the vulnerability itself and the identification of these specific TTPs, is that what leads to eventually identifying who the perpetrators are, right? I mean, is that, is that really important in your mind? Um, so the discovery, it depends, right? There's, there's, when we're talking about vulnerabilities, there's known vulnerabilities. So you know, they, they publish CVEs, uh, perhaps a patch is out, uh, you know, vendors are aware of it. You know, there's, there's vulnerabilities discovered all the time. And then you've got your undiscovered vulnerabilities or your zero-day vulnerabilities, right? So if we're looking at some kind of forensic investigation where, you know, some, some actor leveraged a known vulnerability to compromise a system versus some actor leveraged a zero-day vulnerability to compromise that system, you know, those two are, are completely different in terms of, like, interest level. Uh, as far as attribution goes, I'm not sure how far, you know, the actual vulnerability itself really plays into it. It could, though, you know, perhaps some guys are better, you know, some groups are better at discovering certain kinds of vulnerabilities. Um, and so if you see, you know, for example, a, a SQL injection vulnerability, you know, there might be some hacking group who's just specialized at, at discovering those kinds of, uh, those kind of vulns. And when you're in a forensic investigation, you see that, you know, some custom SQL injection vulnerability was discovered you're like, all right, maybe it's that group, you know, because they're known, they're notorious for going around and finding, uh, you know, finding weaknesses in these kinds of, uh, these kind of applications. So what is reverse engineering? How does this play into a hacker's mindset? You know, so the engineering process, you know, of course, everybody understands, you know, it's this uh, forward thinking, you've got a, a design document, you want to build something. You know, reverse engineering is, the reverse process of that. You know, you're taking something that was already engineered and you're breaking it down. So when we're looking at a piece of hardware, perhaps it's you know, opening it up and getting under the hood and determining you know, what chips exist, what capabilities it has, you know, really figuring out like, what can this thing do? On the software front, uh, software reverse engineering, you know, you're taking a look at, at compiled code. So you know, a software engineer may write high-level source code. It goes through a compiler and that produces a binary that is you know, essentially built on, on machine code or assembly language. So a reverse engineer will go take a look at that binary and now work it back towards the source code. You know, he doesn't have access to the, to the original source code, but can see the actual machine code that's being executed uh, by the system itself. So reverse engineering is really looking at that low-level um, low level software and trying to figure out how does this thing work and then you know, taking that a step further, you know, how can I find a vulnerability in this piece of software, a vulnerability that can then be exploited? So what is fuzzing? I hear a lot about fuzzing. What's, what, is, what is fuzzing and uh, how does it play into to this conversation and the common lexicon of risk? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, when we're talking about discovering a vulnerability, you know, one, 
one way of doing so might be the reverse engineering process. You know, I might sit down with a piece of uh, a Microsoft Windows software, for example, and just meticulously start taking it apart, um, you know, documenting it for myself, you know, tracing how user inputs might be used and, and how I might be able to abuse that. I mean, it's more of a methodical, slow-moving um, uh, process. And we're fuzzing is kind of the opposite of that, right? The idea is, actually, think about it this way. Like, if, if you've ever looked at lock picking, there's two ways you can pick. Well, there's multiple ways you can pick a lock, right? But there's two general ways. One is kind of sitting there and meticulously playing with the pins, right? You're trying to move each one of these pins up to the shear line and then get that, you know, uh, that lock mechanism to spin. The other way of doing it is you, you put in... Um, uh, a machine that kind of like jiggles it really fast, right? And the hope there is that in the jiggling process, it's going to happen to line up. That, that shear line is just going to happen to be found and you'll be able to open the lock. So that that automated version is like fuzzing, whereas that, that manual pin-by-pin pin, uh, process is more like reverse engineering. So with the fuzzer, you know, you might, instead of even bothering looking at, at, the, at the machine code, you might just look at how perhaps two things talk to one another and then write a fuzzer, which will just randomize how that conversation is being had. And then that process perhaps will cause that uh, system to crash. Then you can investigate that crash and determine if, if it crashed because of some vulnerability. So when we talk about hackers and we talk about their abilities and what makes them really good at hacking, do they have to be good at either reverse engineering or fuzzing? Do they have to be good at both? And what if they're not good at either one of them? Are they good hackers? You know, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, sure. There's a lot of facets, you know, to, to hacking. I mean, there's, there's hardware hackers, phone hackers, you know, somehow lockpicking has kind of fallen into the, the whole hacking community as well. Um, you know, these, when it comes to, to software hacking, I think both of those skill sets are, are, are good. You know, some folks will, will even run them in parallel. You know, you start a fuzzer while you're doing reverse engineering and you kind of switch back and forth between the two different, two different sides, two different approaches. Uh, but you don't, you know, you don't necessarily have to be good at either to be considered uh, a hacker. At least not in my, not in my, my, my definition. So it's funny, you know, it, you know, growing up in high school, when when I talk to a lot of my friends from high school and they look back and they say, "Wow, I can't believe that guy became a cop," you know, and like, you know, he was always, always in so much trouble when he was younger, or he was running with the wrong crowd, or whatever. I think about the fact that you have two kinds of personalities that are sort of, you know maturing as they go through school, as they go through college, and then they choose their careers. And when I think about the kids from high school, there's a lot of kids that, hey, look, it, it, these kids that became police officers tend to be on the, you know, on the tougher side. They're like streetwise and street smart. And sometimes they, they ran with uh, some really rough kids who made some really poor choices uh, after school, and they went and they actually chose the other side, and they were you know, criminals. And they got arrested a lot. And they got into a lot of trouble, sometimes arrested by, you know, the people that they actually grew up with, right? But at some point, there was like a, uh, there was a fork in the road. And these, and these kids, as, you know, human beings, had to choose a decision, whether they're going to go to the good side or the bad side, basically. Are they going to, you know, are they going to – but what, what they had in common was that they were, they were tough. They were street smart, okay? They were very uh, – intelligent when it came to negotiation, uh, picking up on little, you know, people's tics, uh, you know, reading people, um, you know, they were just very sort of streetwise folks. And 
they all had that in common and they all weren't, you know, a lot of them weren't afraid. Like they just weren't afraid. And they actually, in some respects, liked the excitement of that world. You know, liked the excitement of being on the street. Uh, I can remember walking, you know, uh, the beat on the midnight shift. He used to volunteer to do it free. And, you know, just to stay after the afternoon shift and work with the guys on the, on the midnight shift just because I liked being out there, right? Just liked being out there a lot. But obviously there was a lot of guys I grew up with that, you know, were in trouble. And it's one of the guys that we ended up, you know, chasing down a lot. But I feel like in some respects, there's an analogy to be made in when it comes to being a hacker, when it comes to being, you know, whether you're a, you're a white hat, a black hat, you know, great. And we'll get into this, you know, uh, into this more in the second segment. But what, what makes someone decide in your mind? And then I think this is an open-end question that, you know, I don't think there's any right answer. But it just seems to me at some point they say, hey, I'm going to go work for a Fortune 500 company. I'm going to work for a red team. I'm going to work on a pen testing team. I'm going to try to take what excites me and what I like to do every day and put it towards something good and something productive create jobs, protect critical infrastructure, or I'm going to be the guy that says, hey, look, I'm just going to go wreak havoc, right? And sometimes it's not even for the money. The money's not even a motivator in a lot of these cases. What, what are your thoughts on all that? I mean, do you have any specific uh, thoughts when it comes to why they do what they do? It's a really interesting question. You know, I, as you were asking, I was kind of thinking about it. You know, it's, I think some of it is kind of out of your, your hands. You know, it's just kind of, it's where you fall in. I'll give you an example. Like you know, just looking at, at my own career, I, mean, I was probably pretty lucky because I was I was messing around with with systems all the time. You know, for example, when I was in university, I went to a Tulane down in New Orleans. I must have hacked the school systems, you know, a half dozen times, and it, I did it out of you know, not out of a, a nefarious intent, but just out of curiosity. You know, it was neat. I was there. It was the biggest network and computer system I, I had like exposure to. And so I, you know, I wanted to, to look around and, and see what kind of things could be found. Every time I did find something, I went and I reported to the school and they were very receptive about it. You know, they were uh, very supportive, like, oh, it's really cool. Like you should meet and talk to this guy. How can we fix this? How can we prevent it from happening again? You know, consider if that would be received differently. You know, if I would have gone there and been treated with, um, uh, you know, if they would have assumed that I was being malicious and maybe I would have gotten in trouble, that could have dictated my path. All right, so I think in some cases, depending on how you're received, you might go down one path or the other. Because say, you know, that same example, I was encouraged, I made more contacts, you know, I, I kept going down more and more of a white hat path. Had I gotten in trouble, thrown out of school, gotten a record, you know, now suddenly my options are more limited and it's kind of pushing me down more of a black hat path. You get one felony on your record, for example, for, for some wire fraud, and you know, good luck getting a job in the industry. You know, realistically, the only way to monetize your skill set at that point is going to be uh, you know, going down the nefarious path and finding some, some black market ways of, of picking up cash. Really interesting. Definitely a product of the environment, right? Definitely yeah. a product of the environment. I think so. Yeah, for sure. You know, that, that goes to show you know, how perhaps we should be handling these kind of situations. You know, if you do have it, even if, uh, you know, some kid made a mistake and maybe brought down a system that ended up costing us, us money, you know, how will we treat that, that kid? Um, you know, what kind of record we give him is going to really dictate the path that he's going to go down. So something to keep in mind. Yeah, I think there's an analogy to be made. I mean, obviously, a lot of the, the people I grew up with that chose to be a police officer, a lot of, a lot of guys I went to school with, played football with, they're, they're, they're police officers. They didn't do it for the money. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're not out there because they're making millions. 
you know, that are out there because that's what they like to do. And that's, and, and it's part of who they are. And, um, and, uh, and they, and you know, they, they just chose the, the side of good, you know? And I think uh, a lot of people who say, Oh, I can't believe that guy is, you know, a police officer. You should go to bed at night and thank your lucky stars that that guy's a police officer out there protecting you who understands how the streets work, who understands how to operate in a very volatile environment to keep you and your family safe. And the same thing sort of goes, I think, into the mindset of these hackers, right? We got to understand what, what makes these people tick. Because I think it's a real fine line between the, the path that they choose in life. I mean, we can identify these folks earlier on too and get to them, you know, before they make bad choices. I think that would make a world of difference because I'm kind of seeing, you know, at least in my experience and the people that uh, we've arrested and, you know, in the Secret Service when we were enforcing, you know, 1030, a lot of these people didn't have uh, someone that they could go to that really understood them. They had intelligence parents. A lot of them come from like blue collar families even. And that no one in you know, their parents didn't understand what they were doing. They didn't understand anything about computers at all. And they had no idea that their, their son or daughter was a computer genius. Right? No, and no idea how to parent that kid. None. Right? They just were like, he's com they're completely outside of the norm, completely foreign to them, no understanding of what that person's going through, how they think, right? Like complete oddity to them, right? It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think if we can identify these, you know, people early on, maybe we can make a difference. Okay, folks, it's time. We, we got to transition to a commercial break. It's time to, to go to a break here. But Stick with us. We're going to really enjoy the conversation that we got coming up because we're going to get into some really more, uh, a little bit more technical, a little bit more sophisticated things using the terminology that, that we just went over. But hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be immediately connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, Please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the Chief Technology Officer of Inquest, Pedram Amini. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of Cyrus Security. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. 
As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or Google Signet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the Chief Technology Officer of InQuest, Pedram Amini. So, Pedram, in the first episode or the first segment, uh, we were talking about uh, different definitions and that we commonly use when we're speaking in a common lexicon of risk. People can understand the conversation that we're having. And like I said, it didn't matter whether you're a novice in cybersecurity, whether you do this every day, it's sort of important just to sort of level set every day to make sure we're all talking about the same thing, right? So now that we have some of that sort of groundwork in place um, and we have that, when we're, we're level setting for the conversation we're about to have, I want to talk a little bit about the vulnerability and exploit markets, you know, the, the black hats, the, the white hats, and I mentioned this before in the, in the previous uh, segment. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what's your perception of these different markets? Yeah, sure. So you know, just to give you guys some, some background, you know, the, and the, the markets have existed for as long as vulnerabilities and exploits have been around, right? In, in, in the majority of the case, though, people were trading them. So, you know, some groups would find, um, find vulnerabilities, write exploits, you know, other groups would do the same, and then they would just kind of trade between them. You know, at, at some point, folks started actually buying and selling, so trading these things for, for actual cash. And, you know, back in 2002, uh, a company called iDefense out of the, the D.C. area had hired me, and we had launched this thing called the Vulnerability Contributor Program, the VCP. And it was really the first above-ground, kind of just open, publicly advertised marketplace. You know, we went out there and we said, look, anybody in the world, if you find a vulnerability and you report it to us, um, we will pay you, we'll verify that that thing is actually what you say it is, and then we will pay you for that information, for the rights to that vulnerability, um, and then now we own it, we own the rights, and then we'll go contact the vendor, and of course, it was also beneficial for our, our customers, who we can give you know, early, early notice to. So that was really one of the, the, the first 
you know, markets, kind of open markets of this kind. And since then, there's been, you know, many other ones. Um, I was involved in the creation of, of the Zero Day Initiative, which is another market, you know, similar to that. And, you know, at this point, it's just been commoditized. You've got uh, companies like Bug Crowd and Hacker One, right. where, you know, you got a, a vendor can go to Bug Crowd and say, look, I want, you know, I want to tap into the, just the, the global researcher base. I want them to, to put their eyes on my product um, to find flaws in it. Um, you know, can you, can you help me do that? And that's exactly what they're, they're geared to, to do. You know, it's interesting. So we did a whole episode on the situation over in Uber that happened with uh, some of their, um, some of their programs, allowing people to find vulnerabilities in their, in their, uh, in their systems. And I mean, we did, we did a whole bunch of different shows on, on this type of stuff. And I think these are some of the most popular shows that we've had because people really are interested in this kind of conversation. Um, there's some, uh, I would say still, even today, there's some problems with the process of, uh, you know, allowing people to do this for companies. Don't you think? I mean, yeah, I mean it doesn't always go down so smooth, does it? True. And you know, a lot of it is, is a perception problem, right? Like I remember when we first started the, the vulnerability contributor program, there was a lot of, of naysaying, uh, you know, people, people thought that we were empowering black hat hackers. You know, they, uh, like, you know, you, you guys are, 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 are causing grief in the world. You know, one, one of the problems that they, they neglect to understand is that those vulnerabilities already exist. It's not like we're paying people to write malware, which, you know, you can write malware all day long. Right? I can, there's infinite uh, pieces of malware that I can write. The vulnerabilities, it's almost like mining for some kind of ore, right? It's there inside. Um, you've just got to go find it. But there's a limited number of these things. Like there's, not, there's not an unlimited number of, of vulnerabilities. So what we're essentially doing is paying people to do that mining, to unearth these vulnerabilities in a responsible fashion. Because the sooner you know about it, the sooner you can fix it, the better that posture of that software becomes. I think so the key phrase here is the re in a responsible fashion, right? Because in, in some instances where the problems have existed, some of these people who found these, these vulnerabilities have actually like, seen, had access to, and even extracted in some sense, in some cases, you know, PII and IP from the company, and that becomes a problem, right? Because then, you know, do notification, you know, and this is a legal issue, and I don't, this is not really a question for you, but it, it, does, does, the problem comes is, does notification to customers actually have to happen after that, even though it, this person's doing this as part of this program? Because technically, they're not, uh, they're, they're, they don't have access, to, they're not supposed to have access to this information. They don't have authorized access to that PII or IP. And uh, I don't know, there's, there's, I think there's a whole, there's a whole lot of uh, issues that haven't been resolved yet, but these programs are definitely, I think, very beneficial to, to companies in their, when they're used the right way. You know, you're highlighting the process issue and gap, but I think to some extent it, it starts with the perception and like Pedram saying, the perspective of each side and, and, you know, almost trusting the motivation of the person who's finding the vulnerability and disclosing it. Right. And that's but really, it comes down to communication problem. of the entire population, right? Because they put yeah. it out there. They don't say, okay, you 10 guys, you know, they just put out a program. Okay. If you come to us and you tell us we got those vulnerabilities and we can patch it, then we'll give you a certain amount of money and depending on, you know, A, B and C. Right. But so you don't know who these people are before they find the vulnerability. Right. That's the problem. No? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So two, two things to throw out there, right. You know, one of the things is we're, you know, we're talking about, uh, when we're talking about discovering a vulnerability that's going to uh, 
involve the release of PII, you know, you're looking at attacking a service there, right? Like Uber, for example, has some software they're running on a platform. Um, and, you know, and if they're actually allowing people to hack their production uh, servers, you know, you're talking to a service that is connected to real data. So with both the VCP and the ZDI, we never, we didn't allow that kind of thing. So we were not buying vulnerabilities and services. We're buying vulnerabilities and software. So you would have to go download that software, set it up in a lab, you know, kind of tear it apart there. And it's, you know, it's its own little ecosystem. There is no feasibility for that to cause any kind of like PII issues, right? You're not attacking something that's in production. Now for companies like Uber that want to you know, get guys hacking on their services, what they really should be doing is spinning up a secondary copy with test data. That way, even if there is a successful hack, you know, you're going to get, you know, fake customer information, not real customer information. But, you know, taking that even further, though, let's just say for the sake of argument that, uh, um, you know, one of these hackers are, are, are able to, to get access to that data. I mean, that vulnerability is there. It's exposed to the public. If not she, then somebody else, you know, maybe some nation state will go and find that, that vulnerability, exploit that vulnerability, take all the data and not even tell anybody about it. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, even in the case where uh, a hacker is seeing things they really shouldn't be seeing, better them in that environment with, you know, with, with that intent than somebody else who's just going to take it and dump it or, or, you know, who knows what else. So what so, was it? Go ahead, Andy. You got something? Yeah, yeah. I had a quick question, a little follow-up. So, so Patrick, I'd like that you mentioned she, right? We've talked a lot about, you know, workforce diversity and, and um, you know, highlighting, you know, successful women in cyber and in, and in IT, you know, from your perspective, what can we do better to attract more women into the hacking community? Yeah, I mean, so we can certainly start uh, at a younger age, uh, you know, kind of expose. So look, I, I'm about to be a father of a daughter. Uh, we've got our first two at the end of September. And wow, so, you know, congratulations. Thank you. Congrats. And my, you know, my intent is to treat her the same way that I would treat a son. Like, you know, I find hacking neat. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to, if we do get a Barbie doll and it has the capability of being taken apart, like we'll take that thing apart and, you know, we'll, we'll play with it. Like it's, um, I think it's important to expose, you know, both sexes equally to all things, you know, whether it's uh, computer hacking or, you know, even combat sports. Like I, I'm equal opportunity, um, you know, with uh, experience. But then, you know, the other thing is, and I, you know, personally, I've, I've never seen this firsthand, but you see so many stories of it. It's not the most conducive environment to females because there's a lot of you know, jerks out there that, that make it difficult. You know, it's, it's, a heavily, it's heavily male-dominated now, and there's a lot of jerk behavior. Um, and you see it, uh, you know, at conferences, you hear about it at, at, um, at hackathons. You know, that's got to end. And, if, you know, if you see it going on, you know, it's your responsibility as another man to prevent it from happening the same way that, you know, if I'm walking down the street and I see a, a woman being attacked, like, I don't care if I know her or don't know her, like my innate uh, reaction is going to be to go help out. And so I think that's got to also apply to the cyber world. I love it. Stop being a jerk out there, everybody. I love it. <laughs> that's right. Stop being a jerk. It comes out to me. We put it in real simple terms, right? I think what, I think what, what 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 was it like running the iDefense vulnerability contributor program, and the, the tipping point zero day initiative? You also ran that as well. Like, That's yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's very interesting stuff. Yeah, you know, so running the VCP, um, it was the first of its kind. You know, it was an, an uphill battle when we first started. 
You know, first we had to just kind of prove that we were legitimate. You know, guys were sending us some really crappy vulnerabilities. I remember there was one in a, a video game system called Abuse that was kind of installed on a bunch of Linux distributions. And, you know, we got this vulnerability report and we're like, you know, this isn't the greatest thing in the world. It's not something that really um, is valuable to our, our customer base, but we got to prove to the world that like, you know, we're legit. You send us information, we're going to go through the process. And, it, you know, it took months of picking up, you know, lackluster vulnerabilities like this before we finally got our, our first like legitimate one that was, that was good, that we're proud of. We're really happy to, uh, you know, to disclose to the vendor and to share with our, our customer base. So it was a long, long uphill battle. We, we, we took a lot of shit from uh, a lot of vendors. You know, Microsoft, for example, is very anti-VCP uh, when we first started. We had a lot of friction with them. You know, today, in, in, in the past couple of weeks, actually, I saw they had a, you know, they now have their own bug bounty uh, program, as they call it. And they explicitly call out the iDefense VCP and Tipping Point ZDI as you know, large contributors and as pioneers in the space. So, you know, it took many, many years. You know, talking about from 2002, almost uh, almost 20 years. Uh, but they, you know, people have turned around. They've they've uh, they've come too. Now, you know, I, I ran the VCP from 2002 through 2005, um, and then I was hired by Tipping Point, moved down to Austin, Texas, to start this zero day initiative. So that was really neat because I got to start from scratch. Right, I. I learned about all the, the things that made the program good, the things that made the program not so good, um, and we got to reinvent it from scratch with a more altruistic posture. Um, and that was really exciting, because at that point, uh, you know, I had built some, some clout and rapport. Um, a lot of the researchers, um, you know, they, they knew of me, they knew of me from both a researcher as well as from uh, the perspective of a you know, respectful vendor, like we're not gonna take your stuff, right? If we can't reach an agreement, um, at the end of the day, you've already shown us your work. So, you know, I need to essentially forget about it. But you've, in the process of telling me about it, if we can't reach a, a financial agreement, you know, you've already shown me everything. So I had built up the trust and, and that was really exciting. I mean, to date, that program is the number one uh, discoverer of, of CVEs, of, of Microsoft vulnerabilities. I mean, if you look at the stats, it's almost one major vulnerability released a day, maybe even up to two a day now. So you know, really neat experience. So I got to ask you this. I mean, with all your experience in this space, what's the hardest platform to hack? What's like really <laughs> like what, when you're like, oh, this is really, this is going to be a challenge. Like this is. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's, I, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of slack from people, from listeners, uh, you know, on this front, but yeah, I, I, I'm <laughs> Sorry, no fear, no fear on this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Yeah. I would say the market is going to be a good way of defining this, right? So if it's cheaper to purchase a vulnerability in a platform, that's going to be easier to hack. And if it's more expensive to purchase a vulnerability in a platform, that's going to be more difficult to hack, right? Like you can just let the market kind of decide, um, you know, what's easier and what's harder to hack into. So if you're looking at it that way, you know, the most difficult thing to hack is going to be iOS, you know, the, the operating system that's running on your iPhone and on your iPad. Right? To, to get a, a, a good exploit on that system, you're talking about a million dollars. That's what it's going to cost um, you know, to buy a capability in that platform outright. Now, you know, ironically, in just in the past like two weeks at a, a Black Hat in Las Vegas, one of the members from Google's security team, the, uh, Project Zero, they're called, they had found a couple of different remote ways of hacking uh, your iPhone you know, through SMS, through email sending. Right, so no interaction. Like I can just send you an SMS, and you know I've, I've popped your your iPhone. I'm not on there. 
So despite the fact that that just happened uh, last week, this is still the most difficult platform to hack by far. And it's what I recommend, you know, for example, to my folks. You know, when, when my father was running a PC, you know, every couple of weeks he's got some, uh, you know, some malware infection. You know, switch them over to an iPad, haven't had a problem since. So, in, in, and so in retrospect, what, what would be the easiest? And I'm sure, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of people don't want to answer this question, but what would be the easiest if you could answer the platform to hack? Yeah, so, you know, on the easy front, well, first of all, let's talk about why is the iOS, why is that hard to hack, right? Some of it is because of just hardening at the compiler and the operating system level. A large part of it is the fact that it's a walled garden, right? You cannot get, a, you can't write a piece of software for the iPhone. You got to write it, send it to Apple. Apple's got to look at it. They review it. They approve it. And then they sign it with their key and it goes into the, into the Apple ecosystem. So on the, like, let's say Microsoft Windows you know, ecosystem, I can write a piece of malware and distribute it around the world. No problem. No one's stopping me from doing that. So that's one of the reasons why. Uh, it's harder to hack that platform. You know, the other thing is attack surface. You, know, you talked about risk earlier. Right? When it comes to finding vulnerabilities, the more attack surface you have, the better chance you have of finding a vulnerability. There's just more for you to look at. There's more uh, grounds for you to, to mine for you know, this, this ore. So you know, on, on that front, the, the easier platforms are going to have a large attack surface, and they're also going to have other facets that are going to be conducive to... Um, to attack. So for example, if there's a, a scripting language that's available, that's going to make my life easier as an attacker because I can like manipulate memory and change the conditions so that's easier for me to exploit it. So now we're talking about large attack surface, you know, the ability to do some kind of like programmatic memory manipulation, uh, you know, complex software, right? If you've got code that's parsing 3D models and doing some fancy things on it, that's more difficult to do. Um, than just parsing maybe some basic plain text. So when you look at all those things, you know, to me, one of the easiest platforms to hack is going to be, I think this is the last place where vulnerabilities are going to die, is your things like uh, your Microsoft Office documents, your Adobe PDF documents, right? your, your web browser. You know, the web browsers have gotten super fancy with, with being able to, um, with sandboxing and privilege separation, you know, to reach the point now where if you want to exploit a browser, you got to chain like 18 exploits together to, to actually fully pop uh, the system that's running that browser. But that browser has a huge attack surface. I mean, it can play mixed media. It can load Flash and Java. You know, there, it, there's JavaScript built into it. You know, there's a, a plethora of things, and it's constantly changing. Right? That's one of the fastest changing technologies. So fast changing, big attack surface, programmatic memory manipulation, you know, these are going to get you your, your easiest. So, you know, I, your, your office documents, PDF documents, you know, the, buying one of those vulnerabilities, you're talking about a couple thousand dollars. Um, the browser, that's probably a couple tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and you know, mostly because it's a lot, you gotta find a few of them to break out. Any one independent vulnerability on its own um, you know, may not be worth that much, but together the full capability, that's gonna be you know, in the tens of thousands of dollar range. So I find it, find it interesting, the financials of all this, right, and how that works, because it's kind of important when you talk about the, the organized crime ecosystem and, and, and the underground world of, of, of cybercrime and how that all works. And uh, obviously, the financial ecosystem plays huge into uh, how this sort of propagates across the globe. Let me, let me switch gears for a second. Let's talk about 
the, the startup life. I'd like to get your opinion. We just had David Revive on, and he was talking about startups. He was he's great. Um, the conversation with him was like very very interesting. I'd like to get your your opinion. You obviously have a lot of experience in startups. How's it going? And 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 you know, do you have any advice for people that are thinking about doing a startup in cybersecurity? Yeah, think real hard about doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it seems yeah. to be it seems to be the, uh, the the consensus of everyone I ask. I mean, it's not this is not for the faint of heart, correct? Correct. It's um, it's it's a lot of work. I've earned these bags under my eyes, and I don't think they're ever going to go away at this point. It's uh, you know, it's it's an uphill battle, but it is exciting. You know, so you know, we talked about earlier about hacking and how it applies to like a, a large variety of things. You know, I consider the whole startup to be something that's somewhat hacking as well. Like you're, you're building a, a company and has processes and workflows. It's got people. Um, it's got an interface to, you know, to customers, to the public. You know, this whole thing, this whole mechanism from the top level down is something that you're essentially hacking on. Right? Like how people communicate within the company. You know, what, what, how we, we even word something for, you know, you, you you provide something and then you have to describe it to the general public to get their interest. So all that to me is also somewhat hacking and I do find it exciting, but it is a tremendous amount of work. And honestly, my, my first piece of advice to anybody would be get a partner. Like if you're thinking about doing it on your own, um, you know, the second you get sick or tired, you know, the momentum stops if it's just you. But if you've got a partner, you know, you can kind of support each other, push each other, cover for one another, you know, so at least have one, you know, ideally even more, more partners when you're starting a, a startup. What was it like to, to launch a product like a, like jump shot on, on, on Kickstarter? It was, you know, so, you know, talking about my, uh, my last startup here, you know, we had, when I mentioned my dad and his, uh, his, uh, laptop problems, his virus problems, actually we, we built that product with him in mind. The idea was, you know, if I can come home for Christmas, and instead of me spending a half day, uh, you know, tooling through his system to clean up whatever infection combination he had, uh, if I could solve that automatically, I would not just be saving time for myself. Presumably, I'd be saving time for a bunch of other folks who were in my shoes. And so that was the impetus behind that, that product is, you know, can we build some advanced malware removal tool that could replicate essentially what I was doing as a, as a human? And so uh, that was, uh, I launched that product uh, with a close friend of mine. Uh, actually, a guy that I met through through college, um, his name's Dave Endler. He's, he's six years older than I am, so we never actually went to school at the same time. But every time I would hack the systems and go tell the, the university personnel about them, they'd be like, oh, you remind us of this guy who just graduated a couple of years ago named Dave Endler. And so Dave and I actually ended up working together at iDefense. We did the VCP together. Then we did the ZDI together. And so when HP bought Tipping Point, uh, neither one of us wanted to work at that, uh, you know, such a large firm. So we left and we, we launched uh, uh, JumpShot, you know, kind of a garage startup, uh, just the two of us. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was very exciting times. And, and it reached a point where, like, you know, it took us about two and a half years of development to get it to a point that we were proud enough that we can actually, you know, try it out on an actual customer's computer. So we thought to ourselves, you know, how best can we get this thing out there? And, you know, Kickstarter was pretty new at the time. You know, at, at this stage, you know, everyone's heard about it. But, you know, back then it was still uh, pretty new. I want to say we were the first, you know, like cybersecurity product to ever get launched on it. At the time, we're in the top 10 biggest tech projects to ever launch on it. I'm sure we're nowhere near even the top 100 at this stage. But it, it was exciting. It was really neat. You know, it gave us, you know, all of a sudden we went from, from zero to a couple thousand users. 
Um, you know, they, it, it held our feet to the fire for the first time, you know, the two and a half years kind of R and D, um, hidden in a cave, you know, you don't have any real deadlines. You can, outside of the fact that you're running out of money, you know, once, once you make a promise to a bunch of people, like it's really important for you to, to make that, uh, make that deadline. Um, and so it was, it was a huge uh, value for us. You know, I, I think the decision to launch that product on Kickstarter, um, really did kickstart our whole, um, you know, our whole endeavor. So tell me a little bit about posturing for the, the, the exit, right? So I've, I've talked to a lot of companies right now that are saying, Hey, look, you know, I'm looking for, I'm looking for someone to get, uh, someone to acquire my company and, you know, I have to do A, B and C to get myself in a better position to look more uh, attractive to a potential buyer. How important is it? Is that posturing? And when does that really start? I mean, I, you have this, I think this, this initiation phase, then you have this like growth phase, and then yeah, if you want to break it down to three different phases, I mean, and then you have this sort of posturing for the exit and, and to get acquired. How important is it? How hard is it? I mean, it's, I think a lot of it is luck. You know, if you look at, if you study the, there's many, many variables when it comes to startups and acquisition and success. And if you study the, the large, you know, like a large volume, large corpus of data, seemingly, the most important thing and that's something that you really can't control is timing, right? Like the same two teams of equal value with equal great ideas can come out and, you know, one of them is just better timing than the other. And the one that had better timing is the one that's going to be successful, you know? So that's just something that's out of your hands. You know, the way I like to think about it is you're essentially taking a shot, you know, you're lining up your arrow, you're checking the wind, you're thinking about your distance, right? You're doing all these things and then you're taking a shot. You know, what happens from there? It's, it's, it could be a gust of wind, it, you know, maybe the target moved, you know, there's this, it's out of your hands, but that's the best thing you can do is just take the best shot you can. You know, in, in terms of posturing for acquisition, you know, the, there's two things there. On the, on the one hand, from day one, you got to be thinking about it in the sense of, you know, even how you do the company agreement, the stock agreement. You know, if you do it one way, your taxation is going to look different than if you do it another way. You know, obviously, it's a lot better to get hit with a capital gains tax than it is to get hit with a income tax. So you're, the way that you structure the company from day one has to be done in such a fashion that it's aligned you know, for this kind of uh, future thought. On the flip side, I don't think you can think about the acquisition process you know, from day one. You've got to think about delivering a product that provides value to a customer base and just iterating on that daily. And then the acquisition kind of comes as a natural side effect of, um, of, of that daily grind. So it's amazing to me how many people don't think about taxes as their primary liability. They think about taxes and they think about, okay, after that, then I have expenses and overhead and things like that. But they don't consider taxes and tax management and they, they just ignore it. And it's their biggest expense, right? It's, and it's, it's huge. And what you just said really rings true to me, um, especially as an entrepreneur. I know a lot of these People going around and they're mad. All like, oh, these people make all this money. They don't pay any taxes. It's a, someone just recently said something to me about the tax code, which I found uh, really interesting. They said, all you have to do is do, take your money and do what the government wants you to do with your money and they won't tax you. When you do something that they, they don't want you to do, they're going to tax you. And it's, it's sort of, when you start thinking about the tax code that way, it really puts things in perspective, right? Because yeah. it's like they want you to do certain things. And if you do these things, you won't be taxed. Everyone's all, you know, upset about, you know, uh, you know Amazon. I mean, billions and billions of dollars, they don't pay any tax. Well, they're because they take advantage of the tax laws that are in place. 
They do what the government wants them to do because the government says, okay, here's the tax code. And in a sense, we're telling you that if you do this, you won't be taxed on, you know, or you get these tax breaks or you'll have these benefits, right? So they do that and then they don't get taxed and then everyone, you know, gets mad, right? But I just, you know, it's no, just I, I got to say though. You look at it like I do think that the tax code needs to be changed somewhat. For you know, a company like Amazon should be paying taxes a lot more than they are today. You know, their executives, their staff, like they're taking advantage of the freedoms allotted to them by this country, and they're not. You know, in my opinion, they're not paying their fair share back in. You know, on the flip side, also from from a startup perspective, you know, the, the thing about the the taxation on that front is you can fail, right? So if I make a startup and I fail, I'm not getting much help back. If I win, I'm going to get, you know, a certain part of my winnings are going to be taken. I'm, there's, there's a, um, you know, there's a rake that's going to happen on, on my winnings, but there's nothing on, on the flip side. Like I think there should be, it's almost, it should be reversed. Like as a startup, there should be very, very little taxation right? because every penny I make, I'm going to spend. I'm not, we're not sitting or we're doing any kind of distributions when you're in the startup mode, right? If I had you know, an extra $100,000, that would go to hiring somebody, you know, without a, without a question, without a doubt. You know, every dollar that we pay in taxes, essentially, it's, it's like molasses. You know, it's, it's slowing us down. Um, it's preventing us from expending that to be, you know, towards some resource that's going to make us grow faster. But then once you make it and you're huge, like your Amazon, you know, then suddenly you've got all these, these tax shelters that you can hide behind. So <laughs> I, I do hope that there will be some, some uh, reform on that front. No, but you can't blame Amazon for taking advantage of the tax code. That is, of course not. Right? Yeah. I mean, no, it's, just, it's just being smart. I mean, it really is. I mean, look, if, I, if there's a law out there that says, you know, I can do this and I take advantage of that law and it's legal, then can't blame me. But to your point, maybe it needs to be revised, right? Okay. I mean, not, not only can you not blame them, it's their fiduciary duty. Yeah, responsibility. That. That's right. Yeah. That's right. If, you, if you don't do that, you're in violation of your fiduciary duty. So, you know, they're doing exactly what they need to be doing. I don't blame them at all. You know, so what do you do today? I mean, what, what are you doing today? Yeah, so, you know, our last, um, you know, my last startup, JumpShot, was acquired by a Czech Republic company called Avast. Uh, they're one of the biggest AV uh, antivirus vendors in the world. And you know, I spent some time there. You know, we, uh, everyone was happy with the deal. Uh, we, we took it to, um, uh, to great success for them as well. And then, you know, when, you know, the golden handcuffs came off, quote, unquote, I was approached by a longtime friend of mine, uh, a buddy of mine actually ran the, the Pentagon's computer incident response team. And so when I was at, at Tipping Point, uh, you know, we had picked up a, a good relationship because you know, we were very curious to see if any one of our zero-day vulnerabilities were being exploited in the wild, right? Because we knew, and we knew this from personal experience, sometimes we would get two different researchers, two different sides of the planet, you know, within the same six weeks, they would send us the same vulnerability information. You know, they had different ways of finding it, maybe different ways of exploiting it. But we knew from personal experience that overlap in discoveries was commonplace. You know, we saw, uh, you know, I've seen more zero-day vulnerabilities than probably most people have. But it's not, you know, statistically on the grand scheme of things, you know, it wasn't anywhere near the, the huge corpus of them. So for me to have seen overlap, I knew that there was going to be overlap uh, elsewhere. And we figured what better place than to go find that kind of exploitation you know, in one of the biggest, most attacked networks on the planet, right? The, the Pentagon at the time was the biggest office in the world. I think now it's still the third biggest office in, in the world. So, you know, my buddy Mike ran that, that, that SOC, you know, the Security Operations Center there. And in the process of us working together you know, towards that project, you know, we just became friends. I, we, we really respected one another's uh, work. 
And, you know, when I came out of the uh, jump shot acquisition, uh, he approached me. He's like, look, I've been, we've been building this, this homegrown tool. It's like, you know that we have access to, to everything. And, um, you know, while our goal is to provide a secure pipe, um, you know, we've built this homegrown tool to kind of help cover the gaps. Do you want to take this thing to market with me? And there's folks who are interested in picking up and, you know, I immediately jumped on the idea. I'm like, this is you know fantastic. I'd, I'd love to. Uh, so look, tell us a little bit about who the, the, the typical customer of, of Inquest is, who, who uses Inquest, right? And what differentiates Inquest from some of the other tools? And I, I just want to, you know, we don't do um, uh, enough, you know, an analysis, I think, of some of the, the products out there. And I just want to get your view, obviously, as a, you know, a founder and CTO of the company. Yeah, so, you know, similar in mindset to with the Jumpshot product, like, hey, can I automate what I'm doing? You know, can I shrink myself down into a USB stick and plug it into a computer and automate that process? It's somewhat of a similar idea behind uh, Inquest as well. You know, can we take a SOC analyst, you know, someone who, you know, a human being who's got, you know, limited time in his day and can be tired, can we take that person and shrink them down into a box that's ingesting network traffic and replicate what, you know, what he or she is doing at scale. And that's kind of been the, the, the thought process behind it, right? One, one of the, the problems that you're going to see just across the board is there's a, there's a talent gap and that's not getting any better. It's only getting worse. You know, there's more data, less people, less skill set. Um, it, it's, it, there's just an explosion of work to do and there's not going to be an, enough people to do it. There's no solution to that problem other than automation. So that, that our key thing there is automate the typically mundane tasks that a, a human being was doing to free up their time and their cognition to do what they do best. So that's kind of the, the, the real differentiator um, is, is how deep we go in terms of like the work and analytics that are being performed. You know, we're trying to approach human levels of analytics uh, so then we can expose um, and data in a way that allows a human to even take that further. You know, like, look, you guys have carried the baton this far. Let's automate that. And now you can take the baton even further now that you've freed up your time. All right, Fredrick, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. We're running a little long right now, but stay with us, folks. We're going to talk about election hacking and cyber warfare. We're even going to talk about the dangers of nation states, self-driving cars. It's all coming up on the next segment of this episode. So stay with us. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, the Chief Technology Officer of InQuest, Pedram Amini. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. 
As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. We're not your typical security vendor. In fact, the script for this ad was written by an engineer, not a marketing guru. Because at SOC Prime, we're focused on features that matter to our users. Our threat detection marketplace has over 30,000 cross-platform SIM and EDR rules. Our downloadable Sigma, Yara, and Snort detections can be deployed with just a few clicks. And our map to the MITRE attack framework, enabling quicker and more strategic detection. With support from SOC Prime's veteran team and our community of contributors, we bridge the blue team skills gap and cover emerging threats with daily releases of new content. Nearly three quarters of the threat detection marketplace is free to download. Register for free at tdm.socprime.com with promo code radio 2019 to receive one free key to unlock premium content. That's tdm.socprime.com. Promo code radio 2019. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the Chief Technology Officer of Inquest, Pedram Amini. So, Pedram, I'm really anxious to uh, get into some of these topics that we're going to talk about right here. We've been talking about election hacking and cyber warfare and a bunch of other stuff on some pre- We've had a whole episodes on these topics here on Task Force 7 Radio. What are your thoughts on election security these days? Yeah, there's, there's really two facets to this, right? You know, one is your actual security of the voting devices. You know, can votes be changed, manipulated, et cetera? And then the other aspect, and, and I, I think that that risk is not as bad as potentially people seem it to be. I mean, you go to like a Black Hat or a, a DEF CON conference, you see guys are able to hack these election machines. Um, but that's because they have, you know, direct access to them. And, you know, while it does seem that the Russians were trying that angle as well, um, I don't think that that outcome was as bad as the other facet of the hacking, which is more of the, 
you know, the perception, the fake news, the manipulation, uh, you know, the, 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 the essentially the, the molding of the zeitgeist uh, to, to change people's public opinion. That, I think, is a much bigger risk, especially in a day and age where everyone's living in an echo chamber of information and the, the machine learning capabilities, are, you know, allow us to do things like deep fakes and just, you know, create entire videos of folks talking and you know, arbitrarily getting whatever message you want out there. So I think this is a, like a huge topic. I don't know if you think, do you, is it getting enough attention with the, with the political candidates today? I mean, I know everyone's saying, well, you know, the, the election security benefits the Democrats. And then the other one says, well, election security benefits the Republicans. And I mean, look, it, it, election security benefits us all. The weaknesses uh, in the security and who's attacking us, I think, you know, uh, is a little ir- irrelevant in terms of, um, you know, what side uh, benefits. Yeah, I think, you know, I, don't, I totally agree. These, yeah. like, you yeah. know, election security protects democracy. I don't care if you're a Democratic or Republican. That is the fundamental basis of the whole system. And it's key for it to be secure, not just in the voting machine, but also in the, the perceptions and the news that's out there. Like something has to be done for sure. And not enough is being done today. And I don't think enough attention is being put on it either. On the first episode, the pilot episode of Task Force 7 Radio, I asked Secretary Chertoff if we were in a cyber war. And I, you know, I asked several people after that, you know, and I like to talk uh, about this topic from time to time because I get a lot of different varying, different opinions on how people want to sort of posture that conversation and be very careful in the words that they choose. What are your thoughts on cyber warfare and are we in a cyber war today? Yeah, I would say yes. You know, I think it can certainly escalate further, but I don't think without a doubt that we're not in a, a cyber war. I mean, I think, it, you know, decades from now, when we look back at this time, probably the biggest heist ever in the history of time is going to be the information heist. Um, you know, all the data that's been stolen from, uh, from the U.S. by, you know, foreign nation states, you know, predominantly China. I mean, look at even things like the OPM hack. You know, this is the Office of Personnel Management. Uh, you know, presumably this was the Chinese. They got access to all your cleared personnel. Their you know PII from them got leaked in that hack. You know, what is the purpose of that? Probably in preparation for future escalated cyber war. You build a database. Letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I try to bring attention a lot to the the the, the theft of all the stolen information and IP from the United States, specifically from China. That's been used to advance their economy. It's been to advance the technology they use uh, to advance their military. Um, it's just, you know, it's just incredible to me, and it doesn't get enough attention at all. And I, mean, I don't know why the the public doesn't seem to care. They should, because China is literally, literally stealing your children's futures. I mean, stealing everything that you, uh, our ancestors, our the people that came before us, our families, our our fathers and mothers and our grandparents and our great-grandparents fought for to get us where we are today. A lot of people gave their lives for this country and they're, they're just stealing it from us. And uh, it really winds me up. And I, I got to tell you, I'm, because of the, my background and, and some of the information that I've been privileged to uh, over the years uh, in the course of my career, you know, this kind of stuff, I, I just don't understand why it doesn't get more attention. Do you, do you, what do you think we should do to bring this more to the forefront? I know it has a lot to do with the trade talks too. It comes up in the trade talks. And I, I appreciate the fact that 
our government's bringing this out when it, when it comes to these trade negotiations with China, and then that we're playing the hardball with them because we need to. Something needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, the people care what they're about, what they're told to care about, right? It, it needs more coverage. It needs more discussion, more dialogue like we're having here. I mean, you don't have to – and, and, you know, in terms of, like, proof, it's, it's so blatant. I mean, look at their latest fighter jet. It looks suspiciously like our F-45. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to <laughs> yeah. this out, right? Yeah. Well, you look you at the pictures, to, right? Yeah, you don't need to be a Lockheed engineer to see that that was clearly, you know, stolen IP. Now, you know, joke's on them as that, I guess, that, uh, that plane didn't turn out as well as we wanted to. seems to be a lot of uh, complaints about it. But, you know, in the same way that we talked about the Amazon taxes and how it's a fiduciary duty for them to uh, take advantage of, of the, the tax laws, you know, the door's open. You know, it, it would be silly for them not to take advantage of it. So it's not about, I don't think we can ask them to stop. At the end of the day, we have to change our systems to make it so that it's not possible. So how do you rate the various nation states out there? First from capability, from nation state capability and cybersecurity, and then as an adversary to the United States, considering their motives and what they want, who's the most dangerous to the United States? And then those two different lists. Well, you know, it's, uh, obviously this is all speculation because, you know, at the end of the day, what is anybody known specifically, what would I know? But I would say that number one by far still is, um, is the U.S. You know, you look at, you know, what I consider to be probably the, the most impressive piece of code ever written. Look at like the Stuxnet virus. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, at this point, it's pretty much common knowledge. We wrote that with the intent of slowing down the, the Iranian uh, nuclear program and with great success. I mean, that thing is just a work of art. Um, it changed together a number of zero-day vulnerabilities. Uh, it's able to, to jump air-gap networks. I mean, it's got rootkits for program, programmable logic controllers. It, it really is just a, it's a piece of art. Um, but then second uh, you know, to us, and, and I don't know how much longer they're going to be second for, is, is China. You know, part of it is because they've got a bigger talent pool to draw from. I mean, just look at the Olympics, for example. Right? Like they've very quickly caught up. Because you have, when you have a, a large population, you have a much higher chance, just statistically, of finding someone who's going to be a great pole vaulter or a great computer hacker. So I, I see them closing the gap uh, very quickly. But where does so, AI fit into this battle? I mean, we've talked about it a little bit on the show. I'd love to get your take on you know, the arms race between AI, between nations, and how, how does that factor in? Yeah, I mean, look, if the ML and AI today is... It's not general AI. I mean, there's certainly a race to get to that, that point. It's definitely going to provide a, a huge advantage to whatever nation controls or, you know, or invents you know, or really births that technology. You know, in that regard, I think we still have um, you know, some, some edge. You know, a lot of the guys in Silicon Valley, you look at the guys behind um, Google, uh, you know, they believe in this thing called the singularity, you know, the, the birth of general AI and how within you know, a second, essentially the difference of intelligence between you and your dog is going to be the difference of intelligence between us and this new, uh, you know, arguably conscious being that we're, we're spinning off. So it, it certainly is a big race, I would say, more important than any other race that we've had in the, in the past. So how about these uh, self-driving cars? What do you think about them? I mean, you know, is, is this going to be more dangerous than it really appears. I mean, I know everyone's sort of excited about this and say, oh, the car drives itself around. I mean, who's going to get in a car and a Lyft or an Uber with, a, with no driver in it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not doing that anytime soon. 
That's because you're old school. <laughs> I, I, old school. I mean, as soon as you started talking, you know, I got to tell you something. As soon as you started talking about you know, the, the the code uh, that we that I started, you know, we talked about Latans. We were talking about Latans, the nuclear facility. I started thinking about the Latanza heist. right? I don't show my age here right now, but you know, I mean, what do you think? I mean, look, I I think it's inevitable. Um, and it, there's going to be some, some growing pains, but I mean, fast forward, like whatever, pick your time frame. Was it 50, 100 years? Like, this is the future. We're not going to be uh, the same way that, that folks look at someone who's smoking a cigarette nowadays and like, oh, I can't believe it's a cigarette smoker. You're going to look at someone that's driving their own car and be like, oh, look at this. Look at this jerk. How dare he, uh, uh, you know, drive his own car. It's, it's so much safer for there to be, you know, to hand it over to the automation. I mean, just think about it from, the perspective of of a singular machine or a singular car, it's not that. It's a fleet. You know, they're going to be speaking to one another. They're going to be when two cars are self-driving and one's behind the other. If the one in front has you know worn down brake pads, it can send that information down to the car behind it, and they can increase their their uh, driving distance from one another. If there's a pothole on the road and one car hits it, it can tell all the other cars about it. If there's a slippery condition, right? You have to think about it as it becoming a hive mind. You know, there's a single driving um, like being that's just moving these pods around. I mean, I, I certainly look forward to that happening. And think about how it's going to change you know, where we live, how we get around, even the shape of the car. If you and I can get in a car and face one another and just have a conversation or you know, take a nap, and then six hours later we appear somewhere you know, completely on the other side of the, the country, I mean, that's, that's valuable for us for just getting around. My car would have to be a bowling ball. <laughs> oh man Fedrum look I really appreciate you coming on the show I can't wait to have you back and uh, like we were talking about on the break let's get together soon there's a lot to talk about I really appreciate it yeah no thank you guys for having me it was a pleasure alright folks it's time to go but before we do I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up to date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com that's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.